how to figure everything Long before he ever buys a wedding ring And a girl ought to size a fellow up and get his number And make pretty sure he hasn't got her on a string Take lots of time before you fall And be careful what you do It's ten to one that he is only kidding And I lay you still a better price that she is kidding too Hello, everyone, and welcome to Other People's Things. I am so excited because my guest today is Dr. Deidre Aducci. If you watch the news in Youngstown, you might recognize her as a regular contributor as well. She is a very special guest with a wealth of experience in psychology, human behavior, and vintage fashion. And I'm so happy that I made her acquaintance recently. Hello. Hi, I am so excited to be here. I am so excited, Rebecca, to have found you and really privileged to be here. Yes. And just a, a quick question, because I think you look so nice today. Can you tell everyone a little bit about your look and um, what time period it's from and where you got it? Yes. I This dress is actually a reproduction. And on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, they had a color palette that is obviously that was set in the early 1960s. And this color palette is late 50s, 1960s. And Collectif had this dress with those colors. Really, they kind of gleaned it right out of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It came out afterward. And um, whether that was their intention, I don't know. But it has the sailor collar and it is a fit and flare and i i paired it with my grandmother's pearls and which are costume and my earrings are costume a coral pink and i wear it with yellow sandals from charlie stone which is my narrow feet only fit in i don't do a lot of um, vintage shoes because my feet don't fit in many pairs being narrow my sister has the same issue I was telling you about that. But it's funny because I can't see much of your dress, but from the collar, I thought it was true vintage. Um, it's it's very pretty. And and I love your oh, hair, hi. too. It's it's very, very 50s, 60s. Looks really good. Thank you. Um, yeah. You look beautiful as, as well. <laughs> you look so pretty. Your hat, you. your hat and your clutch and your dress are beautiful. And your lip. I love yeah. the lip. Thank you. I don't feel like I'm fully dressed unless I'm wearing red lipstick. I think there's something that feels naked mm -hmm. about about my my look and it pulls it all together. And I feel like I'm one of the people that just really loves the red lip. Some people do don't well. and they can look great. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like a staple, a mm -hmm. staple of a vintage look. It is. And um I haven't done this yet so far in the podcast, but I thought it might be fun to start the conversation discussing what we're wearing and just a little bit about the look of the day because I, I work really hard to fit my hats over the headphones and it might be dorky, but I I still think it's worth it. <laughs> my sister was charming. like, no, it's fine. I think it's charming, <laughs> actually. I really do. And it, it makes you stand out. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that it shows dedication to the look. And mm -hmm. and I showed you already, Deirdre, but this hat has a matching clutch. And I just thought it was the cutest thing I've ever seen. And I'm so excited that it is in my possession now. It is beautiful. And I think it's my new favorite. 
Thank you. And it's unusual. We don't find that anymore with the matching clutch yeah. and the hat. And I like matching. And I yeah. think it looks so, um, when we're able to do that with an entire outfit, it really brings it to the next level. I agree. It, it adds some polish. Uh-huh. And, and lastly to say, I just got this shirt on eBay. It's a 40s rayon and I just love the bright colors. I feel like it's not so easy to find those and these days. Yeah, that's true. And a lot of the bright colors I don't always associate with the 40s, um, more so the accessories. I'm not a curator mm-hmm. of 1940s items, but I love the color palette. Yeah, sometimes you think of like somber colors, I guess, because mm-hmm. it was wartime and and people weren't as some of them. You might think they weren't as focused on fashion, but it's it's interesting because there are quite a few very bright, bold pieces that I've come across and I'm learning all the time about it. But the 90s actually borrowed a lot from this time period. And I swear in the 90s when I was a kid, I had some things that kind of reminded me of this. That color like, palette. They took it. Yeah, the color palette and like the scribbly kind of drawings on the shirts. So I love to make that connection. Well, they needed to really be upbeat. And I know the accessories were really the Bakelite. And there was a lot of red, white, Mm -hmm. blue going on. And also a lot of the Southeast promotion. So we did have a lot of colors during the war. You are so right. It's true. It's true. So I'm going to start by asking you a couple of questions. So Deirdre, can you tell everyone listening a little bit about what your background is and how you came to be an expert in your field, as well as why you felt called to do the work that you do? Well, I did not start off with the intention of becoming uh, a doctor in counseling. I really, I was in advertising and I was not feeling, I was at the Ohio State University and I was not feeling that the program was really enriching for me. So I changed to criminology, the study of pathology. I enjoyed that and then went ahead for my master's degree and later my doctorate. And some people have a grand plan about their career. I did not. It was in pieces. And as time went on, I worked for a lot of other people, a lot of other doctors. And uh, I really felt, Rebecca, that I lost a connection with my clients and that that's a whole different podcast about the materialism and the greed in this field, in the counseling field. And I decided I was going to do something different and I opened up my own humble private practice. I always say two rooms and a bathroom and it's... um, it suits me. I enjoy it. I love my clients. I, I really, I have a lot of wonderful clients. My sister, who is my best friend, does my billing. And so we have that now, as you and your sisters can work together. And um, the private practice, we primarily deal with depression, anxiety. And when I say we, it's the royal we, meaning me. I deal primarily with depression anxiety, marital counseling, um, disordered eating, and also substance abuse. Those are my specialties. Wow. There's so much that you do. And I love to hear that 
you were unhappy about something in your field and you decided to do something about it to be more authentic to yourself and your heart. And it sounds like you get more control over how things are run whenever you're working for yourself, although it's probably more work in some ways, but more rewarding in the ways that really count. It's true. Am I, am I kind of, it's yeah. true. It's, it is more rewarding. It is. I mean, there's always, when you have a business, it's your little baby. So as with your podcast and it is something you're always trying to tweak and do better, but I work for my clients and when you run a business, it's always important to remember, I work for them. They don't work for me. When they walk in my door, yeah. they know that I want them there, that I feel special that they've chosen me. I love that you said that because I think that's also relevant to what we're talking about today. Whenever you own your own business, there is a responsibility involved to your clients or to whoever you are providing that service uh -huh. for to remember that you're there for them and if it wasn't for them then you wouldn't have the privilege of doing what you're doing True. and it's it's easy to forget that i think once money becomes a heavy factor there uh -huh. or once you become so popular that you're not relying on uh -huh. maybe your clients coming to you quite as much. So we'll get back into that. But I think there's some interesting parallels. My next question is, can you tell us about what brought on your love for vintage and vintage fashion and what styles or eras you're most fond of? Yes. Again, it wasn't a grand plan. And I grew up in the neighborhood with my grand, my sister and I grew up in the neighborhood with my grandparents. We lived with my dad and my grandparents and all of my great aunts lived around us and my aunt and they were before the pajamatization of society started later on now, we, they dressed and they wore a matching dress, earrings, necklace, and always lipstick. If you were in the hospital, you can believe as soon as you woke up from anesthesia, you were putting lipstick on. And truly, <laughs> I mean, they, if they went to the hospital, they had a matching little penoir set. And I loved it. And I, as I grew, I had that in the back of my mind. And in the 80s, um, when I started to, when I graduated from college, I started to, um, it, my wardrobe gained momentum because I had never had any money. We did, I didn't grow up with money. And um, like you and your sister Miranda were talking about, we were not wealthy. Um, and there were hand-me-downs and we shopped at um, stores that there was a lot of polyester going on. And I still don't have an issue with polyester for some reason, but I, you said you do or I you don't, do or you for don't? Some reason, okay. For some reason, okay. I don't. I should because growing up in it. <laughs> but um, I still, my sister and I still had an eye for fashion, like you and Miranda did. And I think that um, when I graduated from college, I did it the way you were not supposed to. And I bought everything. And at that time in the 80s, um, this was late 80s, they were doing, of course, 80s does 40s, 80s does 50s, and I did not know what that was about, but that was what I was purchasing. 
and later led to current day, and I started purchasing household items and things that were part of my youth. And then eventually, two years ago, I decided that I only wanted to dress vintage. And I, wow. it was just a decision. And literally where I said to my, I told my husband and my family, I am only going to dress this way. And they said, well, we see, you know, we can see where this is going. They could see that I was heading there. And um, I dress in normally. I'm a bit of a time traveler. I like some of the 30s, some of the 40s, primarily late 50s, early 60s, up to 1963. And that's where it stops. That's so cool. And I love to hear the story about your aunts at the hospital. Why? I was just wondering, why do you think that they insisted on still wearing those matching sets and the peignoir sets, even whenever they were at the hospital? Like, what do you think it was about the times that they were in that, that still made them want to dress up even when they weren't feeling their best? I think they knew something that I've later learned that when you dress your best and you're consistent and congruent with yourself, I believe that you are less anxious because I think we are truly mm -hmm. anxious when we are inconsistent with our own values and we don't trust ourselves. Yes. So my feeling yes. is if you trust yourself and you are consistent, then you will truly feel your best. And I, I felt they were very ladylike. They were very modest. And they saved these penoir sets and they wore them to, they had special ones and a special robe designated. And part of it was for coverage so that they had a nice special robe. But when you would visit them, they had their little golden girl hairstyles and lipstick and they just looked so pretty all the time. I love that because whenever I was in cosmetology school, my primary clients for the walk-in day were the little old ladies with like the, almost like the Q-tip hairstyles, but they wanted their perms and their roller sets oh. and they kept them like that all week. And you know, you better believe that they would come in with looking their best, even if it was just like a matching, like jumpsuit type set, you know, you know that they're putting into that a lot of effort and thought. And I just really admire that. I do too. And yeah. And one thing I wanted to say that I thought was interesting about what you mentioned to me was the polyester, because um, that was around like the 70s, whenever it became like the biggest thing to wear, because I remember watching Saturday Night Fever and it was all about the polyester suits. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching one movie and a DJ, this was around in the 70s, and I was watching this movie and the DJ said, you all better be wearing polyester or something like that. And I was just like, interesting, because the vintage polyester was much less comfortable than than the stuff that I'm used to now. I thought like the double knits and like the really thick, kind of scratchy, like not breathable um, types of polyester that I found in the thrift stores. I, I guess I have a hard time imagining how it would have been comfortable. Was it? Um, not when I was a youth, no. And when I wear polyester now, it's so thin. Um, a lot of vintage yeah. reproduction you will find has the, it's thinner polyester. And at work, I'm sitting a lot. So it's nice to get up and not have, be completely wrinkled. 
So yeah. I don't normally my tops might be polyester. It's harder with bottoms because they're not as breathable. But yeah. it's still um, if that's the best way to look good at what you're doing and what you can afford at the time, then it's not a yeah. bad gig, really. Oh, I agree. And I've definitely worn my fair share. And a lot of the 40s things I have are synthetics. They're rayon um, or something similar, maybe a very early type of polyester, mm -hmm. like in the later 40s. I've gotten some garments that I'm like, wow, I didn't know they were making stuff that felt like this this early on. So I, I definitely recognize that it was a necessary and historical part of fashion at that time period. And I mean, it's still relevant mm -hmm. and they're doing more and more things with it all the time. As far as vintage clothing goes, how has wearing it improved your quality of life? Because I know you touched on um, the anxiety thing mm -hmm. and about it being congruent with your values, but is there anything else you wanted to say about it? Yes, I, I wanted to give a shout out. There were some people that were definitely part of that feeling. Um, there's a YouTube channel inspired by Nikki, Nikki Moreno. She was a really big part of it. She does not identify specifically as vintage, but very ladylike, um, wears dresses exclusively. And she uh, was really, she kind of reintroduced me to the idea again of secondhand clothes and thrifting, which is something I'd always done and then put down and done and put down. And so, Watching her, that was something really important. And Lacey Fay, um, the vintage girl next door, come back, Lacey. Um, she had a channel that was phenomenal. And just there were some people, YouTube can do a lot of negative things, but it can also do a lot of positive things. And watching them, I was able to curate um, some things with love, Christina. And Jennifer, let me look at Jennifer's name. <laughs> Jennifer is Jennifer Elise, and she's phenomenal as well. And I, I watched them, and they talked about curating these wardrobes. And I began to curate the wardrobe, Rebecca, just the way you're not supposed to. I machine gunned it. I went out and did everything fast, just bam, 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 and didn't they had all recognized the need to really explore what the decades were about before you purchase everything. But I was so excited and so immersed that I bought without any reservation really about the decades. It was just, I need this, I need this, I need this. So. Um, that would be a learning curve for someone new into vintage. It's really take your time and get your staples. I didn't do too bad, but I ended up reselling some of that and donating a lot of it. That's relatable. It's it's easy to get excited. I'm so excited. And... I still am so excited. Yeah. I could. I I just I love just seeing your outfit and it's so beautiful. And I, if I may, I wanted to touch on something that Erin had said from Gwendolyn's mm -hmm. Golden Heiress. She had said sometimes it made her sad that she would realize that she had created a world for herself that was beautiful 
and from the decades she, she and her husband love. And I follow her. She's fabulous. And they're building their, their home, rebuilding it, and her clothes, etc. And she said sometimes she felt sad that perhaps it was deceptive to herself because she was living in a, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, kind of a fantasy world. But I think that I would disagree. I think it's wonderful to create a world that even if it isn't for anyone else that you feel comfortable in and is consistent with your um, values and what you, how you want to feel. And I have with my office and with our home, it is done in vintage primarily. And I think that's where I feel comfortable and cozy. And I think that you contribute to the world by being happy and hopefully that cast off in our views to other people. And they can see that, that you're happy. And then it also um, hemorrhages down to the world in a positive way. I think she'll be happy to hear that. And I agree with you completely. It's, it's so important to take control where you can. And sometimes mm -hmm. that that's your space and where you're living and what you can decorate with if you have enough resources to do so. And I've found personally, the older I get, the more resources I'm lucky enough to have and the more comfortable I feel in my own space, which was a very important value of mine. And talking about spaces, I, I think it's interesting as time goes on in our modern world that less and less art and creativity and individuality has been put into, especially the construction of new houses, the decoration of houses, things are more minimalist and um, a little bit darker, like there's a lot of gray, but that's something that I don't feel like I can personally thrive in. Absolutely and not. Whenever, yeah, and I think maybe a lot of us do feel this way, or enough of us, because once I'm in a space where there's beautiful handcrafted old things with like character and like, you know, like even the stressor back here, there's just like de like little decorations carved on it and things don't really have that touch as much now unless you're paying uh -huh. a lot of money. And just every, every little touch like that just kind of helps me feel alive inside. And, and I just couldn't agree more that it's so important to create the world that you feel most comfortable in around you uh -huh. if you can do so it eases anxiety. Yeah. Oh yeah. It really does. Oh yeah, it helps you. I saw mm -hmm. that you had I believe bar cloth curtains. And yeah. I have those in our master bedroom in our spare room. I was able to find them. And immediately when I look of them, look at them, I feel so grateful and so happy. And that certainly moves down to your psyche and your subconscious and there's so much anxiety going on in the world right now that why not do something that is consistent and parallel with ourselves and we feel good and hence that's the energy we're going to put out there. That's true. It all starts at home. It's where you spend mm -hmm. a lot of your day, especially mm -hmm. if you're working from home like a lot of people are these days. And and I agree. I love the bark cloth curtains. It's getting harder and harder to find them for affordable prices. So I've been lucky to find the ones behind me. They have magnolias on them. And then the ones in my living room have hibiscus. And then 
um, at the antique mall every once in a while, I'll find random panels of just like maybe one panel and it might be a little damaged, but it has like a nice design on it. So I'll just kind of collect them and mix and match in my one room with just different, different curtains. And I it's love a little that. bit thrown together. <laughs> yeah, it's thrown together, but I, I still love it. It's like an art gallery for me and I love being around art and beautiful things. I so it, it helps my... my yeah, exactly. It just helps my heart. And I think you understand that too. I'd love to see your curtains. I I wanted to ask you just a little bit more about what your counseling practice office is like, because you were telling me that aside from offering the best prices in your area for the type of work that you do, you also decorate in a very special way there. And I wanted you to go into that a little bit further and talk about maybe how it impacts your relationship with your clients. Well, when I began my business, I decided that um, it's called restoration counseling. So it obviously it makes you think of the little sparkles from the, the starburst from the 1950s. And I decided that that's the way that I wanted to go. And for people to feel there's a place they can be restored and valued. And to whatever they dream of that being. And... When I have two rooms and a bathroom, and the first thing was the color palette, I went with basically the same color palette I'm wearing, kind of an atomic age palette, and there's more of a turquoise blue. Um, also, yellows, I use friendly yellow from Sherwin Williams. And also, I have a stained glass window that is um, modern that I put in, but is it is modern, but it looks retro with the same colors. And it is, I tell my clients that I have a little retro refrigerator, little micro, everything is retro and vintage. And I tell my clients, it's like you fell asleep in, in 2023 and woke up in 1957. And they love it. They love can't say I have bucket seats, so that's more 60s for clients to sit on. I've had many different things um, with the hairpin legs, um, but it is very, it's tastefully done. It was almost entirely thrifted, and I, there are some vendors in our local area that Mr. Darby's, Joshua Tree, Lou Berry's, that are amazing, and the shopkeepers are amazing, and they would keep things back for me when I went in. And I found some things that were not really expensive, but truly curated that late 50s, early 60s, um, starburst clock type of feel. That sounds really beautiful. And I'd love to see, I'd love to see it. That's so nice that you were able to get original vintage furniture too, because a lot of that mid-century modern stuff, depending on your location, can be very expensive or just very difficult to get your hands on and how do your clients feel about being in that space what benefits do you think it holds for them well i think the whole thing is combined when you walk in i decided that this was my view rebecca i felt as though clients should never see what's behind the curtain it should be like Disneyland. They shouldn't see what's behind the curtain. And so when they walk in, it's serene. It's calm. It's calming colors. And when 
there's when you come in and my retro refrigerators or beverages, I have a coffee station that's retro as well, um, a vintage vibe. And so, and when you leave, I have a squirrel platter that um, there is a goodie. Every time you leave, you're getting something salty or sweet. It changes weekly. And mm. um, so I hope they feel valued, just not by the external things, but by when I see them, I want to be smiling. I want them to know, come on in. You're welcome here. And also, yeah. um, I dress up every day. I own the business. I can dress in jeans or whatever. I do not. I normally have on, I always wear vintage, but I, it may be a dress, usually as a dress. Um, but from my head to my toe, um, jewels and all my costume jewelry, um, I dress up and that's a sign of appreciation for my clients that I'm glad you're here. I didn't just roll out of bed to see you. I made certain that I looked good and that raises the bar for them as well. Yeah. It's like a sign of respect to dress up for people. Um, and I think they really appreciate that. And you're also almost creating this like archetype or just like this, cozy reliable place where they know that it's going to be a certain way when they arrive Uh and they probably feel a lot of comfort knowing that a it's predictable b it's beautiful and c it maybe represents like an idealized version of how things could be um in their lives and i think that works out i mean in my opinion whenever i have a positive example of how things could be and i see other people living in congruency with with their values and making things look very beautiful, it inspires me. Uh-huh. And I think I if I had a therapist that way who decorated like that, I would probably want to work harder to take better care of myself and my space because I have that direct example right in front of me. So I think I can imagine that you're impacting them in a, in a big way I hope so. underneath the surface. I hope so. And surprisingly, um, the millennials, and you mentioned before in another podcast, you're a millennial. I did not expect the millennials to be the biggest supporter of it, but they are. They love it. And they recognize it when they come in. They know what it is. I expect that older people would enjoy it, but the millennials fully embrace it. I wonder if it's because millennials um, came of age and were really like in their 20s when Mad Men was a big thing yes. and that was a popular show. I, so I, I wonder how much that has to do. Yes, and it might be like their grandma's house or and um, when you're ready to talk about Mad Men, we can go there if you want to. <laughs> I, collect, I, I, love collect, I collect items from Mad Men. So I have some things from the actual show that I purchased. Wow. So. wow, that's so cool. I'd love to hear about that. Um, at some point, I've heard people minimize the importance of wearing and buying vintage clothing um, or even nice quality regular clothing at fair prices from competitive secondhand markets like the Goodwill bins or just a thrift store. Um, they've said that no one is entitled to nice clothing and it's fair game for whoever gets there first, basically. So I guess if we all thought this way, 
and kind of treated people who don't have as much money or access to these nice things as, oh, they're not entitled to it, so I can buy whatever I want. And they're not really thinking about about them, thinking that maybe like the bare minimum is fine for them. Um, how could that affect them on a psychological level or a social level? Well, I think that I see where people are coming from when they say that. Um, the problem with the logic is this. When the gentrification, let's say with Goodwill, is when we, Goodwill is a model for a lot of other thrift stores. And it's where I purchase a lot of items. And even in the time I've been dressing exclusively vintage, the prices have increasingly gone up. The trajectory has gone higher. And so we know that it is a model for other vintage stores because so many people are gouging the items there and it is like a big juggernaut coming in and taking over the stores when people purchase and then resell. The gentrification comes in because the people who really need those items or people who maybe decide early on I want to dress vintage or collect Pyrex or things you could normally get there, it's getting harder and harder to find. And when you go to purchase them in other locations, it's going to be much higher. So people may just say, you know, I'm not going to dress vintage. I am going to go back to fast fashion. Therein we have that loop that if everyone were fair, and this is about being fair, whether it's whatever business you're in, it's about being fair. Don't take everything. Leave some for other people. And when you're selling it, do not escalate the prices so they're not so they're so untouchable for people. And I understand some things are very covetable and can the prices go up, but just because you can doesn't mean that you should. I agree. And you know, the people that would really appreciate having those items and having them not all taken from these secondhand sources. I think that it goes back to what we were talking about, being able to express yourself and decorate your home in a way that feels good to you. And yeah. it could definitely affect your anxiety or your feelings of fitting in and being like comfortable in your own skin if you're not able to obtain those things for fair prices. And that's why I think that when people say no one's entitled to these items, I think that it's I mean, I understand that no one's entitled to anything, really, um, depending on which source you look at or which law or which ideology or, or whatever. But it just because somebody doesn't, isn't necessarily entitled to something doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to enjoy it. And it's it's kind of like whenever some people might argue that just because someone is on food stamps or they are on welfare that they shouldn't be able to spend their money on certain things because they're not entitled to more than the basic necessities. I think it's a similar item or a similar thought process because whenever somebody says that they're, they're kind of thinking, well, they should be happy with just the bare minimum, the cheapest stuff, the cheapest groceries. Um, they shouldn't be walking around with nice cell phones or their, their hair done because, you know, they're using welfare and they're they're poor they don't need that 
And I think that, you know, people that are relying on the Goodwill or the thrift stores to dress and look nicely because that's all they can afford. I think it's very similar telling them, well, you don't need those things. You can use this fast fashion here. So I shouldn't have to regulate what I'm spending for reselling. I, I think it's a similar argument and people may not like that I'm saying that, but I can see it. I think if we only looked at our fellow man and woman and we said, look, everyone likes to look good. Everyone likes mm -hmm. to feel good. And there's enough to go around if we don't gouge. And a lot right. of times I understand someone may have a savvy eye, so they go in and they purchase kind of everything. They go in at estate sales. And I've given up at estate sales because the professionals go in and it's really plucked over by the time I get there. Um, yeah. on, when it opens, you go in and it's plucked over instantly. And secondly, with Goodwill, they've had to raise their prices. So people who come in yeah. are, aren't able to afford those things. And transgenerationally, that may have been somewhere that they really looked at as they had access to something. They have a right to look good, too. We all want to look good. Yeah, exactly. And I think some people might confuse like entitlement with having a right and saying that they're the same thing. Well, I think everybody does have a right too, and I I don't know if you would say it's the same thing as being entitled, but I think that having a right to something is just import, as important as anything else. And whenever you're getting affected like that and people aren't able to dress the way that makes them feel good, then I think it, it does it does degrade them in some ways and it feels and it feels degrading to not be able to to buy those things and you see somebody next to you at the goodwill with a cart full of things to resell that you might have appreciated and i know not everybody has an eye for quality things but i think most people who are shopping for their families know the difference between something that's super cheap and is going to fall apart in a day and something that's going to be more stylish or fashionable and someone i've heard say they have the argument that it's also subjective what people like and what people think are nice, but I think to an extent only. Like I think most people aren't going to pick up like a blouse from Shein that's maybe a little bit shabby or snagged or something like that and say like, oh, this is much, much nicer than this, I don't know, higher quality thing or more stylish or fashionable or expensive thing because people notice what brands other people are wearing and they might want in on that too. Uh -huh. But the issue is that with reselling, they're looking for those brands as well or those styles and then it becomes a competition. It's, I was gifted a box of beautiful vintage clothes and I didn't fit them. They were too small and I brought them, this was a huge box, I brought them to Goodwill and I could only hope that I could have sold them, but I brought them there yeah. because I thought there are other people who wear vintage locally. Hopefully they're going to pick these up and not a collector. Thank you for saying that because I was just talking to someone on Instagram who's a reseller and she told me that most people that donate their clothes, especially if they are wealthier or more secure financially, they don't care what happens to it once they donate it to Goodwill. But I think there's a lot of flaws in this argument because why would you donate it then if you don't care what happens to True. it? I think that you could easily just throw it in the garbage then. It, I think that's um, a flawed I argument. Think most, I think that's a flawed argument. 
people do care. I they, do too. They, in fact, when I help people to sort through their, um, like people who hoard things, they truly care where their things are going. They're only parting mm-hmm. with them because they think they're getting a better home. So exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say that exactly. Most people I've talked to who donate or are getting rid of their old things, including myself and my family members, we we donate to Goodwill or to thrift stores because we want someone else to be able to enjoy it for a fair price. And um, the woman that I've been talking to, who I've been lucky enough to correspond with her, and she is sending me some of her vintage clothing that she has been hanging on to for 30 or 40 years. She said that I've been depressed thinking about this because I don't want it to go to the wrong home. I want someone to appreciate it. And I'm glad that I found you because I was worried about what would happen to it otherwise. I didn't want to throw it away. I didn't want someone to resell it for way more money than it's probably been worth. And I just think it's important to think about these things. It's a charitable donation. People are donating it with the thought that it is benefiting people who are in need and that's why they call it that when they write it off on their taxes it's a charitable donation and i don't think that reselling clothing is a charitable um a charitable venture so it's it's just interesting that that there's so much justification for this because these are charitable donations that you are um price gouging and flipping for a lot of money and like you said if it's if you're keeping the prices very reasonable. I'm not really going to be coming after you as much for this. It's not really my my hill that I'm going to die on. But keeping as much available to people who want it and need it is something we should all be thinking about if we're dealing or dabbling in reselling. I agree. Not taking more than you need. <laughs> I agree. And I think, again, if we do price gouge, keep in mind Goodwill, they've gone up um, about 27% in pricing. And that's what I had read in my research. So when this happens, when we price gouge, it has a ripple effect, not just at Goodwill, but other places that are um, definitely that use Goodwill as a model for their thrift stores and vintage stores. I really appreciate you saying that because I've heard so many people complaining about thrift store prices going up and up and up, and these are resellers. and. They're blaming all sorts of things, but never their own actions. Uh And I think the real truth is, is that thrift stores are becoming wise to the reselling empire or um, trend even, you could call it. And they want a slice of that too. Or maybe they want to make it a little bit harder for people to do what they're doing. I can't say 100% what their reasoning is behind it, but we know that prices are going up. And who does that affect the most? the people that can't afford those prices, okay. like the low income people who are shopping there that want to be able to buy and are finding it harder to acquire those nice touches of like decor or glassware or clothing. If, if they catch wind of it being yeah. worth something, these thrift stores are probably going to be upping the prices. And I can't help but blame also the resellers as well as the thrift stores for for upping their prices but i can see why they're doing it and and i think that you can't really be that mad if you're doing the same thing you're because like the resellers i think are doing the same thing as the thrift stores they're just charging as much as they think they can get for something because they know that someone's going to be interested in it so maybe they're just upset that 
they're doing the same thing. So true. Yeah. So my next question is, um, oh, wait, I actually wanted to just say one thing about how one thing I've thought about is that for career mobility, upward social mobility, sometimes it's necessary to be able to wear nicer, better fitting, better tailored, higher quality clothing for certain career fields to be able to obtain or get good jobs, to look your best and feel your best and have confidence to rise above your station in life. And I think that if you're able to get those clothing items, then it's going to help you so much more. And if you really are about, you know, the American dream or rising above or lifting people out of poverty, then I think supporting keeping higher quality items at either affordable prices or thrift store prices is so important. And that is also why I don't want to see resellers taking everything of value out of thrift stores because a lot of the time, you know, your camera's kind of creeping there upwards. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. Um, but I, I think it's important because I know that I've gotten job interviews because I've gotten more confidence from thrifted mm -hmm. suits that are of higher quality than I could have afforded new. Mm -hmm. And either suits or dresses or just nice things. And there's lots of nice things at the thrift store, less and less as people resell it. And low-income people depend on those things. They, so I just want everybody to think about that. They do. And I think that if, yes, I'll just, I, I underscore what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I, I was going to take a little break and then stop this video and then restart it and pick it back up again in just a few minutes yeah. to give us a moment. So I'm just going to step away right now and we will be right back. motivation for selling part-time has been to share in a good price with another vintage lover. How has Grady Reselling impacted that connection that you were hoping to make with other people just like you in the community? Well, I, to be honest, it has somewhat spoiled the experience in um, selling because I have felt that in being gouged, the price gouging that occurred, it made me not want to be a part of that. So it wasn't as pleasant as it could, as it could have been. I, on the other flip side, in purchasing from Etsy and some people on Poshmark and eBay who've been fantastic, that part has been good. And, I, excuse me, I look for, and some of your viewers may see this, I am considered a larger size. I'm a size six, sometimes an eight, but in vintage you'd be 12 or 14. And um, when you go to purchase those items, it normally always says rare. 
and that translates as price gouging. And so it, it can feel defeating sometimes, but I do not embrace feeling defeated. I will move on and look for vendors that do not overprice and that truly want someone to love their item and are selling at a fair price. It's interesting because I spoke with a woman on my Instagram messages and she said that she refuses to shop from anyone that editorializes the fact that the item is a rare larger size or a, or a considered plus size, even though it's probably an average size today considered to be. And I think it's very interesting how many vintage resellers will really talk it up and make a big deal out of something if it's not like a size four or something like that. And and I think that that gives them the right to charge maybe sometimes even double what they would charge a woman who wears a smaller size. And I am a woman who wears a smaller size at current, but it's definitely not like a super small size. I'm probably more of like a small medium in today's sizing. And I even have an issue with how people are pricing women who wear a slightly larger size or higher. And it just seems so wrong to say like, oh, here you have to pay this extra money because you are bigger than what I'm selling normally. It just seems mm -hmm. wrong. It, it just doesn't feel right to me. It does. Especially your appearance. It's so true because if I go on Ann Taylor, I'm going to take a six but it's considered more rare. Um, and that's okay, I understand. It makes it more desirable, more you know, coveted. At the same time, there are, there are vendors who will sell it at a fair price. When someone writes rare, and I know it isn't rare, then I'm not going to purchase from them. But someone may, and then they are not going, they may feel defeated and not want to shop anymore after feeling that they've been taken advantage of. Definitely. Mm -hmm. From a psychological standpoint, do you think that marking some items as rare, um, kind of talking them up, uh, having listings being direct message only to purchase, kind of putting that pressure on people, how do you think that that can manipulate our perception of value for these items? Well, I think that Something is either rare or it's not rare. By marking it rare when it isn't in order to elevate prices, A, it causes distrust. And if someone purchases it in the beginning of their journey for vintage, then later on they will come to understand that it wasn't rare and they will feel taken advantage of and distrust you. So I think this really comes back to the same point. If it truly is rare, then feel free to market as rare as such. But if it is not, don't do that so that you can elevate the price. That's not fair. And it's something you may have short-term gain, but long-term you're going to cause distrust. And um, probably your purchasers, your buyers, are not going to want to work with you. I agree. And do you think... What are your thoughts on, on people that don't list prices or things that they might advertise on Instagram and they say instead you have to message them directly to get the price? Well, it's been it's been very defeating again. I've there were some people that sold directly, um, YouTubers that I really like and they sold um, 
items, but it was very challenging because literally, Rebecca, when they would start their sale, there is, no, and I'm pretty quick on typing, you could not purchase an item. And so it, there was no way for me to purchase something. And it looked as though you turned your head and everything was gone. And it was desolate. The page was just desolate. There wasn't anything left. I don't know how people managed to do that, but this falls under the category of just because you can doesn't mean that you should. And that we should have higher standards for ourselves. And it doesn't mean you can't have any of what you want. Um, but again, like Aaron's example in the other podcast about the guy with the helmet and her husband, Aaron's husband had wanted, he's in the military, I believe he wanted that item and, um, or perhaps he isn't, but he wanted that item nonetheless. But the one gentleman made it clear he's going to get it and cried and he got it. And such practices really aren't necessary. Share. Everybody should have had the right to pursue that helmet. Yeah, definitely. And it kind of sounds like you're saying that it creates this sense of competition or urgency to whenever we read that, that listing that says like, this is rare, DM to claim, mm -hmm. do it as fast as you can. It, it can also sometimes trick us into buying something we might not want that badly. Um, but it, it the same time, it kind of manipulates our sense of reality if that item is something that we really even want, or does it just seem really rare or special because of what they're saying, and you don't want to miss out on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and then if you have to send a direct message, you are also engaging in something I've talked about before, but competition with others, possibly, or not. And then also you're having to engage in like that personal conversation with the seller, which puts the pressure on just a little bit more. And all of it causes for me anxiety. Well, it's anxiety, but also it creates, I had that happen with a vintage shoe company that I had, you had to measure your foot and all these other things. Three months later, I never got my shoes. I paid for them. And this was all done through DM. And at the end of it, they said I was being unreasonable after three months. This was three months. And they said, it's coming, it's coming. And I saved my messages. And it, they said I was, the owner told me I was being unreasonable because I wanted my money back. So I had to go back through, luckily I used PayPal and they, I did get my money back. But when you're, you're manipulating people and sometimes they try to get into personal conversations with you and um, they're trying to extract a feeling here and they're attempting to manipulate, which is not going to happen here. And the feeling of competitiveness, again, short-term gain, but long-term shame on you. Exactly. I'm so curious about this shoe company. Was it an individual reseller or was it a larger company? It was a larger company. And it was, it was very bad experience. Ironically, they said they were in Chicago and that they would be here. I don't live near Chicago. They said they were in customs. I would eventually get my shoes. This is a year later. The shoes never came. And I was being plenty patient. 
waiting for the shoes. I was even willing to wait six weeks. When it got to three months, um, I said, I'm just not going to wait any longer. And I decided I pursued it with PayPal. So it was two months, and then it took time to get PayPal to research it, et cetera, and get my money back. Wow. Well, I'm so glad you were able to get your money back because that's unreasonable. And the fact that they were defensive and attacked you over it, to me says that they weren't willing to take responsibility. That's actually happened to me, too, with an Etsy reseller in a different country. I think it was the UK. And I ordered a dress from her. I was very patient. I waited months. It was caught up somewhere in customs or something. And she went as far as blame me. She mm -hmm. blamed the post office. Yes, she told me I had to take it up with the post office. Yes. And I couldn't get anything. They said you have to take it up with the seller. She yes. deflected. I honestly never never going to shop with her again but this is how people are being treated all the time by businesses or people or resellers just because they think they can get away with it and yes. the sad thing is a lot of times they do they do get away with it they do they get away you. but the the shame of it is rebecca since i have a hard time fitting into shoes with having their feet i would have purchased shoes over time from them so they created a very bad taste in my mouth and they said that because they were from another country, they had a different calendar. And the owner said to me that she said, don't be silly, was her exact comment, because I didn't know their calendar. And I don't know their calendar. And so I think just those things, it's bad business practice. And we don't need, you won't get ahead with those things. Yes, first time my shame, second time yours. So it's if you're going to have practices like this, it does catch up with you. It does, and it sounds like they missed out on more than just that shoe purchase. It was a potential loyal customer for years oh, to come. Oh, no. and yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. And I, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I kind of thought of something else. I've received so many messages from people who were saying that some of the resellers I've been discussing on my social media who have been participating in, I would say, bullying and just being very defensive, they, they have said that because of this behavior, they don't want to shop with them anymore. And I didn't have to do anything but just show proof of pictures of how these sellers are talking to their customers or how they've treated them like first-hand accounts and I I'm not surprised but I'm still always amazed at just how badly people think they can treat others who are giving them money for a service keeping them in business it's absolutely wild to me it's well it's backwards as I said with my business I work for my clients and they don't work for me and I think if we all had yeah. that that's something from the 1950s that there was a very strong business sense that, and your customers were treated more cheerfully. And I like that business model because people should feel as though they know where to spend their money and that they are appreciated and valued because there are businesses on every corner. So for someone to pick my business, that always makes me feel really good. Yes. And that's, it sounds to me like another vintage style value that might 
benefit people to think about practicing today, which is mm -hmm. the more old fashioned notion that you're a small business and it makes sense to have relationships and accountability to your clients to keep them coming back to you. Mm -hmm. And I, I wasn't alive back then, but I know enough from other people's accounts that you knew who your local so-and-so was right. and you built yeah. relationships with them. Uh -huh. And you you couldn't just treat people badly without any consequences. And now with the internet, you don't see people face-to-face. -face. You don't really have those relationships quite as often or easily. And I think it makes it easier to treat people like they're not people you need to be accountable to, uh -huh. less than or not quite human. So true. And it's so sad. And that relates to my next question. So your field of expertise might come into play here, but why do you believe that so many resellers have become defensive, angry, sometimes aggressive or passive aggressive towards me as I, as I have continually brought up my concerns? And why do you think people tend to jump towards the defense when faced with an issue that is uncomfortable for them? Well, I've witnessed some of the bullying that you've experienced, and I think you've been really brave to bring these things out, and you're a pioneer. And I think that people become defensive. If I'm doing something correctly, and I know that it's okay, and I'm doing things in the right way, there's no need to be defensive. But I think that you are hitting a vein that causes people potentially to look in the mirror and they know that they're, if they're not doing what you're suggesting, then there's no reason to stonewall you or be defensive or call you names. I've seen people call you names, which is really, that's just disgusting to me. And I think you're hitting some egos and um, you're hitting, you know, into practices that have been going on and they haven't needed to justify it before. And so I think you're hitting on some strongly held um, lack of values by some people and uh, they don't like it. So they are bullying the messenger. And I undergird, there's nothing you've said that I don't undergird and underscore. Exclamation point. Thank you. Thank you. I, I agree and I've been seeing this too. It's, it's helpful to hear other people have their perspective on it because it's really easy, I think, to whenever people are dogpiling and ganging up on you, it's sometimes very easy to doubt yourself, especially because I work really hard not to have a big ego. That's been something that I've always wanted to be aware of because I know how blind it can make you for constructive criticism or self-assessment and it's so easy to lose touch of that too when money or power is involved, which I think many people who are getting the most offended, there's a lot of power, money, and status for them that they are afraid to lose. And they've probably worked hard to get to that point. And I understand that, but with great power does come great responsibility. And once you're shirking that responsibility, then you do have to be accountable that, you know, that, that power and that privilege is something that you don't deserve to just keep and hang on to no matter how you act. 
And I well, think that that's where a lot of people are getting mixed up. Well, I think you've, you've been able to shine the light in something that has been very murky in the past. And people don't like that. And sometimes, I think whenever we're censored that way as people are audited, I think that's a good thing. If someone shines the light and says, we want to know about your billing practices or we want to know this or that, a check and balance system is essential to us, not just individually, but collectively. And that feeling shouldn't make us feel defensive. It should, okay, let me check this out and see, is there something I can change, edit, modify, tweak? Those are good things. Exactly. And I like, I really like your reference to auditing. It makes a lot of sense. And, and I do feel like it's a simple request for transparency. And it's important whenever you do have a lot of power or money or a presence that you realize that no one's immune to that. And it actually would be a better thing for your business to be open to that. So true. Do you have, yeah. Do you have any advice for anyone who's listening? And I know there are lots of people listening who are part of this group that I'm talking about. Um, do you have advice for them whenever they feel defensive or angry towards me for speaking out about these concerns as to how to handle it in maybe a more productive way? Well, I think behind anger, anger is a secondary emotion. And behind anger is primary emotions, just like primary colors would be hurt, fear, and frustration. So I would say deal with those emotions. The anger that is being um, projected at Rebecca is if your feelings, if you're feeling hurt, if you're feeling afraid, if you're feeling frustrated, that's okay to say, you know, I'm hurt and these are the reasons why, to clarify something. But to come at someone, I've read, um, luckily you are transparent, Rebecca, and I've read some of the things that people have said to you and you are a very kind human being, you're professional, you're a wife, you're a mother, and people have to realize this is not a blank screen that you're saying these things to. And the one person called you a Karen, and that is just so rude. You are not a Karen. And if they have feelings of hurt, I respect them as well. If you have feelings of hurt, fear, or frustration, share that, but share it in a respectful manner. There's no reason to come at someone with name calling. This is someone, this is a professional that you're coming after. She's a wife, a mother. She's trying to do a good thing. So step back from that, those feelings of anger, and really see what's reinforcing those. And maybe you're angry in other areas, and that would be more like a Karen. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And thank you for saying those kind things about me. I, I really do try my best to be respectful and responsible with all of this. And I do like to have my fun sometimes and make and make jokes whenever people are already coming at me with these insults and, and outbursts. I can't help but make a little bit of light, lightheartedness out of well, it. Well, you have to. You have to. It, yeah. it, it permeates. It hurts. When people are slinging arrows like yeah. that, this is not a nameless, faceless person. Be aware that yeah. what you're doing, it's harder to do that if you're doing it face-to-face. And would Definitely. you really 
would you really want your friends to know that you're acting like this? And would you say this to her if you were doing it face to face? It's embarrassing for them. The people, the things that some of these people have said to me, I maybe they would have said it to my face, but I can't imagine it being quite so easy. And it's never easy to be at the receiving end of these underlying, like you said, primary emotions of fear or hurt or anger, which I know is the reason for all of this. And that's why I get a little bit frustrated whenever people try and project onto me something else, because I know that the issue why they're coming to me and, and being bullied are because they're feeling either hurt or afraid or angry, but they're trying to flip it around on me and saying, oh, well, you're just saying this because you're just mad that you lost an auction or you want all the vintage for yourself. And it's like, those are just so silly things. And my way of dealing with the difficulty of the whole situation when people come at me like that is to poke a little bit of fun at them because it's just, they're taking it way too seriously, taking themselves way too seriously. And, and I think that a lot of it is, it just needs to be dealt with a little bit of humor to lighten things up because it can get very intense and it's, it's not nearly as personal as I think a lot of people are making it out to be. I'm not going after their character or the person they are outside of their business, but you know, I think a lot of people attach themselves to their, their business or their role they play in that business. And they, they might think that everything is a direct and personal attack because they identify with it so much, but that maybe isn't so healthy either. So I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a hard, it's hard to understand why people do what they do. I have a friend who, Katrina, she's handsome Zeus on Instagram and she rescues, she rescued Zeus. She's a pit bull and she does, I'm an animal advocate and people come after Katrina for having a pit bull who is just a beautiful soul. And they say the meanest things to her. And all she does is try to bring beauty to the world. And I think when people, why would you say those things to another human being? It's just very unkind. You're not doing this to, um, there isn't provocation here to put up your dukes. I'm trying to start a fight. You're trying to help something that is occurring. And you're bringing light and transparency to the vintage world. And so I think people should look at this and not take it so personal. Deal with their hurt, their fear, their frustration. Do it respectfully. Right. Exactly. With with anyone. And just like your friend, I think that people are probably coming at her with, with mostly feelings of emotion, maybe fear or other experiences they've had. And, and I don't think it's anyone's place to come onto someone's page or platform and tell them, what you're doing is wrong because of my own feelings towards it. I don't think that that's right. I don't think people should be, I don't think it's effective. You're not going to get anyone to listen to you or want to change their mind that way. And there's, (laughs) there's ways to get a good conversation going with other people. If you can just like maybe identify what's going on with you and saying like, Oh, I'm afraid of, if somebody were saying, okay, I'm afraid of, of these dogs. Like maybe we can, like you can tell me more about, that or we can talk about that yeah then you're not coming at someone and you're not accusing them of anything yes and I think she would she definitely would recognize she admits she was afraid when she adopted him 
and she's educating someone and she's just one ex Katrina does a lot of work to help to educate people as you do but yet people instead of recognizing that sometimes what people don't understand they come after someone and they do it in a way that is very lack of impulse control and they don't tend to edit or censor what they're saying there's a sense of entitlement that I can say whatever I'd like and just it's going to hemorrhage onto you and that's okay it's not okay exactly it's definitely not okay and and not everybody has to agree on these things like on my page or my platform I don't care if everybody agrees with me and I'm sure your friend doesn't need everybody to agree with her but it's just about your delivery and how you bring things up and if you're going to come to someone's page if you don't like something or agree with something they're saying the best thing you can do is just ask questions and and have like a respectful conversation and if you don't want to do that then maybe your intentions to comment on their page aren't so positive anyways and maybe you shouldn't be doing it at all correct but i think if you correct if that's the case just keep moving yes i mean and that's what i that's what i don't understand is why don't you just not visit that page or you know that's to me that would be my instinct is that's not something i'm really into or maybe i can learn something yeah and um, yeah exactly you know but not everybody's like that so i would just kind of throw down that gauntlet to say if if you're saying these things to her perhaps there's anger in another and i'm certain they're going to come for me after this and i'm and i'm okay with that because i will back up what i'm saying as well that when people are that angry when you're using an axe to do the job of a fly swatter, so to speak, then there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that approach. And maybe you want to just check yourself at the door. 100%. I couldn't agree with you more. And the last thing I wanted to ask you before we wrap up is, do you have any ideas of some ways that resellers could be more sustainable, ethical, and community-minded to make our community a more accepting and supportive place? Definitely. I work with a lot of vendors who are like that. And I wanted to mention that you had mentioned a suit to me as an example, i.e., and it was a beautiful suit. And I knew what it was worth. And you were selling it much lower. It didn't work out color-wise for me. But fair is fair. And I would have had a possibility of owning something wonderful, like Aaron found that beautiful Adrian suit. And everybody wants to own a piece of something beautiful and feel beautiful. I guess if you look at it and you think everyone wants to make a profit, that's true. But what standards are you motivated from? And look at your value system. And is your trade, is it reflecting your value system? And if your value system is to be overpriced, and then you're not caring about the other person. And that's bigger than just being someone who's a merchandiser. That is, to me, that expands more into your view of other people and more of a selfish type of perspective. So look at that. You know, maybe it's deeper than just sales. It, because if I don't care about the consumer in my business or in my shop, then I would say it probably goes deeper than that. Definitely. There's 
a lot of examination that, that could be going on. And I just hope that the work that we are doing today together here and that I'm doing on this podcast is going to just encourage or invite anyone who refills or is interested in, in refilling at all or just in the community to just think about how they would like to conduct their own dealings and what we could all be doing to make this community a better place. Because there's lots of wonderful, lovely people who I've been lucky enough to meet, including you, Deidre, and it's it's just been a positive thing, and it can be, to continue to be. So thank you so much for joining me today. I have and, had a really great time, <laughs> and I would encourage people to to really, if you're having an issue with anything that Rebecca is saying, listen to the podcast, watch the podcast. And really hear what she has to say. And I think that will really deflate a lot of their feelings of anger, hurt, fear, and frustration. If they really look at your heart and what you're trying to do, which is such a good thing. Thank you. Yeah, anything can be debunked, as they've said. And if it hasn't yet, then it will be. Because I'm planning on continuing to do the show and breaking down everything that's been going around and working hard to just get the facts to you and educate myself through this and and everybody else that's interested in partaking in this journey with me. So again, I'm going to wrap up now, but one last thank you to Deirdre. And I just hope that everybody that has joined us has learned something and enjoyed their time and keeps tuning in. So thank you so much, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's a wrap. There are lots of fellows think that they're in love. There are lots of girls who think the very same. When a gal likes a fellow just because he's got a bankroll and he likes her because she is a pretty dame. That ain't the proper kind of love that's a bunco game for fair. It's ten to one that she ain't on the level and it's still a better price than that that he ain't on the square. There ain't no love be making any honey. With him it's the looks and with her it's the money. When a fellow's on the level with the girl that's on the square, there is no other kind of happiness that can compare. But dodge the merry wedding bells if there's a single doubt. It's the worry of the thing that makes it hard to string it out. You can tell the way she chatters if it's coin she's thinking of. With 30 cents you're rich enough if it's a case of love. She needn't be a queen, he needn't be a millionaire. When a fellow's on the level with a girl that's on the square. Every fellow ought to figure everything Long before he ever buys a wedding ring And a girl ought to size a fellow up and get his number And make pretty sure he hasn't got her on a string Take lots of time before you fall And be careful what you do 
It's ten to one that he is only kidding, and I lay you still a better price that she is kidding too. We all have dreams, it seems, of matrimony. We wake from the dream when we pay alimony. When a fellow's on the level with the girl that's on the square, there is no other kind of happiness that can compare. But Dr. Mary Wedding Bells, if there's a single doubt, it's the worry of the thing that makes it hard to string it out. You can tell the way she chatters if it's coin she's thinking of. With 30 cents, you're rich enough if it's a case of love. She needn't be a queen, he needn't be a millionaire. When a fellow's on the level with a girl that's on the square.